Hey everyone, this is Jess. I just wanted to make a little note about the audio on this one. We were experiencing record flooding and rain in Chicago, and that meant my internet was bad. So I had to record all of, or edit all of this on one track. So the quality's a little off. You can hear sometimes the internet go out in between. I even mention it during the episode. But I hope that you enjoy the episode anyway. My apologies for the audio quality. everyone and welcome back to rpg rnd i am one of your hosts jess geyer i'm one half of wannabe games and i make role-playing games i'm here with my co-host craig campbell hi craig hi jess i'm craig campbell i'm the owner of nerdburger games and i have decided to stop making role-playing games completely what sorry <laughs> no 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 I, i'm kidding i, I know I, that I, I was no like... one has ever said that in the history of games that's never happened oh no that happens a lot uh... well, okay nobody's ever meant that in I, the history I, of games yeah i think i don't think it gets said in such a way very often it does occasionally um i think no, you're right it's people it who said a lot people who who it says but never followed through on right yeah that's... um but people who who quit out Usually they just kind of like, okay, I'm done. And they just kind of fade because mm. <laughs> people, there are always people leaving, but I'm not, I, I, I just, <laughs> we record on zoom so I can see Jess's face and she just like completely paused. <laughs> like she wasn't like, is Craig joking? I don't know what. I was like, I've talked to him recently and I didn't like. <laughs> He's got a Kickstarter coming up. I yeah. think. A big um, announcement. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I make tabletop role-playing games. And I will continue to do so. And our guest has already piped up. Hey, Sean. Hi, guys. <laughs> Sean, tell us about yourself. Welcome am... back, first of all. Well, thank yes. you. And then tell us about yourself. Uh, I'm Sean Jaffe. Uh, I am co-creator on uh, Rememorex uh, and most recently Commandroids, A World Transformed. And I have also said on multiple occasions that I'm not making role-playing games anymore, but I'm old <laughs> enough to know better. Uh, and the only time I'm ever going to say that and mean it is when I die. Uh, oh. So... I'm, I'm, I'll be I'm interested to hear you haul. say that after you are dead. Yeah, <laughs> so I be, that's be... gonna be that's gonna be my last words. Put it on your epitaph. But... Yeah, <laughs> Sean Jeffy, whatever date to whatever date, I am no longer making role playing games. Like chiseled right into my, the stone. My wife has already said that on my gravestone, it's going to say "died as he lived, committing to the bit." <laughs> so I can't put that there, but it'll be somewhere. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> Well, I'm glad to hear that no one is quitting role-playing games because that would be a very like strange podcast to like keep going into. Yeah, like the oh, day that, that I quit and I, and we're on this podcast, <laughs> we're on this podcast, it'd be like, Jess, I'm quitting making role-playing games and I'd like to tell you why. And we're gonna spend an hour <laughs> talking about Ugh. all the things that frustrate me, which you might know, be a good topic down the road. It's just are you guys yeah. familiar with the People's you. Revolutionary Council? Have you ever heard of this? I'm not sure I'm supposed to talk about this on a podcast. <laughs> this oh. is this is a a, a a a chapter in role-playing game history that I think is is very shrouded in mystery. I don't know no. if I'm ever no. supposed to talk about it. Um it's like the fight club of role-playing games it was a thing that used to happen back in the 90s <laughs> in gen con at the end of gen con they would get together and have the people's revolutionary council where they would vote to elect 
to execute various elements of the industry. So it'd be oh, like it was, a, it, was a, it was a steam letting off exercise. Yeah, and it, it was, <laughs> I, I think it was put together by James Wallace. <laughs> uh, and I remember I got to go and I was like sitting next to like Jonathan Tweet. Uh, it was, uh, um, you know, it was back when I was doing Sinister Creative. So I got in, invited by uh, uh, Gareth Michael Skarka and I was sitting next to Jonathan Tweet and like, uh, I was like one row ahead of Mark Reinhagen, like all these like legendary names. And I'm like, oh, oh my God, I don't belong here. And like, they, you know, it's just they would be like, OK, the People's Revolutionary Council elects to execute the people who don't decide what they want in line at the food trucks. And, <laughs> and, yeah, okay, and okay. we have um, elected to execute the, the publisher, uh, the printers that don't get back to you with a with the publisher's proof fast enough and that kind of thing yeah so people who are in charge of shipping prices currently yeah yeah a lot of that kind of thing and it was <laughs> yeah. it was uh but like i i don't i i, I might be in trouble for mentioning this i, I don't know like I, that was a it felt like a very elite like i'm like oh i, I made the big <laughs> well, leagues. i'm hanging out with these guys well sean just and or i will be in touch with you if we receive a phone call <laughs> oh yeah from, let me know uh, from an unknown number. Uh, I might be in uh, trouble. Sometime um, in so I'd like to take this opportunity to announce that I'm not making role-playing games anymore. <laughs> uh, anyway. It's, it's, it's been a good run. Committing to the bit, like you said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as, as a fellow uh, improv guy with, with background in improv and classes and teaching and all that stuff too, yeah, I, I commend you. Very well done. Uh, thank you. So... What's our what's our actual podcast topic, <laughs> Craig? I'm imagining um, I'm like really imagining some uh, Jacobins and uh, <laughs> like standing around a guillotine and executing ideas. I like that idea as a game. I'm gonna put that in my pocket. Uh, so, sorry, Craig. What's the what's the topic? <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, today for the GMing side of things, we're gonna talk about running games um sort of in the present day slash set in the present day you know and i think that this is one again one of those topics that's kind of broad-based we can kind of wander around to a few different places um because we we so often run games in that are set in fantastical worlds pseudo medieval oh, medieval a lot of medieval made I up futures I think maybe too much medieval yeah made up futures superhero worlds all that sort of stuff but when you run a game that's set kind of in the, the the modern day even if there are fantastical elements to your modern day game there are unique challenges that present themselves with the fact that the players have all this knowledge at their fingertips about what the modern day is really Cell like phones. Um, so I think we can probably delve down into that a little bit in, in wherever it takes us. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the I think the reason why we set our games typically in the past or in the future is because there's this element of like, oh, we can throw it. We can throw a tablecloth over this. We don't need to worry about if it's accurate right, yeah. or not. But you don't really have the luxury of doing that in a modern setting because you know whether or not something's accurate. like. I don't think that that though, I don't, for me, that's not the biggest issue when it comes to running a game in the modern day. Like for me, it's being able to still provide some good challenges for my players and like keep information from them or like be able to truly separate them when they have things like cell phones and the internet. <laughs> right. That's, that's what throws me off. 
So I, I specifically wanted to do this topic because this is something that I have run screaming from for the past mm-hmm. six years. My players would be the first to tell you that they have been perennially trapped in 1986 for six years. <laughs> uh, it's like Bart Simpson. Yeah, because they, they, you know, like, and a big part of the reason why is that, like, you know, if you're doing like, and it, it's that, like, you know, staple of those movies is that, like, there's a group of kids who run into some, some sort of danger and they have to deal with it themselves. And if you give them a cell phone, they can just call the police. And right. so I really wanted to stay away from that. And, you know, weird thing was, is that, like, in this case, I'm running away from it. But what I've seen in the past is I've also run a game that was set in the modern universe like uh, I, I ran a, a larp called uh, x arcana and we used to do it it was set we got this amazing location it is heartbreaking that it's gone uh it was the perfect location for it there was a bar in manhattan called the lovecraft and um oh, there's one in portland called the lovecraft too it was really cool yeah i think the the portland one is still there the the the, the we lost the uh, manhattan location because they tried to turn it into a much more normal bar mm. uh and then it immediately closed who could have seen that coming <laughs> um yeah turn yourself into the sort of thing that's competing with every other bar in manhattan you'll see how that shakes out so but for a while it was this amazing place and like had this like sort of hidden door in the back that like led you down into this weird alcove in the basement that they had done up in like all of this sort of steampunk style. And there's this amazing mural under the lower bar of like Cthulhu attacking Manhattan. Uh, and it had all these like, you know, spell circles. I mean, you could not ask for a better location for a game about modern wizards. Mm. But it meant that my players sort of self-regulated, which I kind of didn't want them to do because they kind of forgot that they were in the modern world, right? Like that's the story is that your characters are just your sort of uh, a bunch of essentially unfrozen steampunk wizards from the 1800s who've woken up in modern Manhattan and you're trying to figure things out. But it meant that they had full access to their phones and to the Internet. And there were a lot of puzzles that we gave them that were like, yeah, you could just look this up on the internet, but they would never think to do that. Like they'd well, be like, I, I can't possibly, you know, they're from the 1800s, right? Like, yeah, that it was might good not be my first thought. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, there was you know, like the, the idea of the game was that like that you were playing either one of these wizards from the 1800s. And by all means, you wouldn't think of the internet if you were one of those, but there were, there were a, a equal amount of people from the modern era who had also gained access mm-hmm. to magic and like had, we're, we're going to these 1800 wizards as teachers. So those guys uh, called the gutter snipes absolutely knew about the internet, but it was just this strange thing of being like, you know, in so many LARPs, the first thing you do is put away your cell phone. So like, it was just not even questioned that people would put away their cell phone and assume they didn't have access to it. So it's very weird for them to be like, how do we do this? And I'd be like, check your phone. And they'd be like, Oh, right. <laughs> well, I, I, suppose, have one of those. I suppose that speaks to the idea of dealing with this unique situation um, yeah. by having a social contract in place. They had an understood, assumed mm-hmm. a social contract that was in place. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you as a GM, if you're running a game set in the modern day where the care, you know, the players have their phones and, and you're not a GM, you know, like you, you as the group don't just tell people to like leave your phones at the at the door or something like that people can have their stuff with them like yeah like the, that's that's your first step is to think about like well what's the social contract on that sort of thing going to be are we going to assume that players can't use that stuff we all come to agreement on that 
but is that realistic for characters in the world who are in the modern day where the internet exists um, and other modern conveniences and things that they might have access to? Yeah, that becomes a, that becomes a balancing act. It's a it's a line to, to walk and figure out kind of how you're going to address all that, because I know what Jess is probably getting at is and and what Sean is alluding to there as well. It sounds like that social contract was they didn't want to solve it too easy. They didn't want to, quote unquote, cheat. Right. Yeah. Game. They didn't want to cheat the experience of solving the puzzle. Um, whereas that might be the experience is like having strong Google skills <laughs> right, <laughs> like, yeah. and being able to, yeah. to, to find the, an- the answer. So that can be incorporated. You can make that work in a game. Uh, in this instance, like there were a lot of puzzles that sort of utilized aspects of real history. And then you had to extrapolate what like, you know, the fake history was based on that. Right. Mm-hmm. So like a huge element of the game was North Brother Island, which is this abandoned island right near Manhattan um, that is considered to be incredibly haunted. And of course, in this universe, it very much is. So there was a lot of stuff where you'd be expected to sort of like, yeah, Google North Brother Island or look it up or, or like stuff about like, you know, the New York City subway tunnels. And then you'd be like, OK, well, based on what I've learned about the New York subway tunnels, this is a perfect place for ghouls to live. So that's probably where the ghouls we're looking for are. It's it's an accepted trope at this point in horror movies. And I feel like this is a thing that we go through. It's like it like every horror movie that comes out now has to explain where the hell your cell phone has gone. They have to take it away. Yeah. They absolutely have to, because otherwise they're going to call somebody and be like, get over here with the National Guard. And so it's, it's almost like a throwaway line. It's like, I can't get service. Yeah. Every guy in every house horror movie ever <laughs> is like the first thing they say is I can't get service here. But that's also just speaking as a horror movie aficionado that existed in a way even back in, let's say, the 70s and 80s, where oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. they had to explain why you couldn't just go to the cops easily. Like the, the cops had to be the cops had to be inept. Well, yeah, it could be the technology, but also the, or the cops are inept. The cops are in on it. The cops can't be found. The The characters and the, and the action takes place too far away right. from any sort of law enforcement. And, and the, the characters the best, can't get the to the cops. Well, like they have to find a way to deal with cops all of that. From uh, Return yeah. of the Living Dead. I well, love yeah, that. send more cops, send more paramedics. Send more paramedics. <laughs> that was so good. The zombies asked for more cops to come because then they yeah. could eat them. It was <laughs> one of my favorites. In real life, though, if they're not, they're going to. In real life, though. If you told the cops, if you told the cops that you were being attacked by ghosts, they're not, they're going to hang up on you. They might send the cops to come, like, tell you to stop being a nuisance. But also in real life, like, you're, they won't help you in a lot of real life situations. Like, you, you call, if you, they're busy, they're doing other stuff or you know, they're not going to respond to a bunch of scared sounding children like that can be very realistic. And I don't think that it's unrealistic to take away their toys at certain points, the toys being here, the cell phones, because there are plenty of situations in real life, like in modern day where you won't have access to your cell phone, or you won't have signal like if you went down to the subway tunnels. I mean, there, there were some, sometimes mm. I'm on the the subway here in Chicago and my, my service is gone. Or I'm in a I'm in my school that I'm teaching in, and if I am away from like I'm in these big cement you know rooms, I don't have a signal. 
one of my favorite things to do with this setting, like with a modern day setting to make it so that they can't tell anybody, they can't go and get this outside help is they are also implicated in the bad things. Like, oh yeah, you can go tell the police, like you can go try to get a hold of the authorities. Now they're going to know that you're a freak monster magic person what do you think the government's gonna do to you when they learn that you have you know psychic abilities bad things bad things will happen to you uh so they're all like there are things that you can do within the modern setting to like toy with that so they're not quote-unquote solving it easily so they're not quote-unquote cheating um or you can plan in that like yeah the authorities are going to come and this might pose a different kind of problem maybe they're going to solve the problem in a different sort of way than you would want the problem to be solved yeah that's very true um i think it's it's ultimately one of those things that you need to kind of figure out with the players like what's acceptable for suspension of disbelief um and how you want to handle all that or you go the other route and you just be like okay we're going to accept the fact that you can access the internet and um and embrace that and find a way to incorporate it into the game like let that be a part of the gameplay um and then something that struck me too because of the nature of the internet and we all know that yeah there's an awful lot of information out there but it's not necessarily accurate that's true it's not vetted it's just the internet where everybody just barfs information and opinion and what they think are facts up there too you can make it clear from the outset in that session zero and maybe remind players every so often yes you have access to the internet your characters have access to the internet but let's all keep in mind that the internet is not 100 trustworthy now that creates an interesting conundrum for the GM because you have to be careful about how often you use the your information is faulty routine because if you do it too much you run the risk of the players resenting it and being like well why do we even bother looking anything up if the GM's just going to slap it away from us every time um, but to do it every so often and make the players kind of work a little harder to confirm <laughs> the information or to find actual evidence in gameplay that something is the truth you know like the internet information can give them a starting point and then they have to figure out if that's actually accurate but they actually but that at least they go in with like maybe you know the, uh, this this truth let's be careful because it might not be 100 percent true let's not put all our eggs in that basket because it could get us all murdered horribly by the monster or whatever right um, or have the corporation come after us or whatever. So that's just, that's, that's a, a thought on like, you know, play with the fact that it, none of that, the vast majority of that stuff out there isn't vetted. There's, there's no guarantee that's accurate. Or the things that you really want to get to are hidden in some deep esoteric dark web place that you might not know how to get to the real truth. Right. Speaking of internet, this is just for editing notes for anyone who is saying like, oh, wow, the stuff is breaking up. I couldn't hear just talking for like two minutes. Uh, my internet um, <laughs> is having some weak connection. Okay. Yeah, I didn't so, want to say anything. <laughs> happened that, was right. <laughs> that was me. That was me. I got a little notification that said weak connection. So just pretend if you couldn't hear me that I said something really cool. 
<laughs> yeah, because I was losing it on my end and Jess and I are both it was me. recording. So it's entirely possible that both of our recordings are, are missing some little chunks. So, um, you know, you, you're, you're all smart people. You're smart listeners. You can <laughs> fill in the gaps on what we've been talking about. <laughs> and fingers crossed that it cleans up. Uh, Sean, you run a lot of like you. You are the 80s role playing game aficionado. Um, <laughs> I I am very curious because there is still technology that is used that is that can be used in similar ways that we use technology today that existed in the 80s, like telephones and things like that. Do you do you find it to be that much of a difference? So I do. I find this to be a huge thing because uh, having players do research in <laughs> like an 80s setting is very different because I think it's just a less insular thing. And I haven't been able to come up with a way in the modern world to square that circle. And so whenever the players are getting together to do research, I always sort of nudge them in the direction of the library even if one of the players has a computer and this is the nice thing is that like since it's 1986 not everybody has a computer but there are definitely hackers and the hacker kid always has a computer so they're either going to go to his house to research the thing or they go to the library but whatever that is it means there's one computer which means they're all together so they can converse and they can like role play amongst themselves figuring stuff out and uh that's I find that's more, you know, it's, it just makes for a more valuable role-playing uh, scenario than like each of them is separate and doing their own research. <laughs> where, where the whole group just stops playing and everybody's looking yeah, at their phone. Yeah, everybody just starts looking at their phone. <laughs> uh, but also it means that like, you know, that you can sort of uh, uh, drop hints that like, you know, one person might find something that we wouldn't normally, but like, I, I especially love when you get to throw them into the library, you know, and that's, like a big thing where they can kind of do uh like you know because it's this repository of knowledge and there might be something that you didn't expect right so you can always have somebody make a perception check and they notice this old book that references the thing they're looking for and like oh here's a book about it right and then that'll kind of lead them down a different path or uh uh and you know like we saw that in uh it uh the, mm -hmm. the, the the new one where they go to the library to figure it out and you know there's the weird uh, jump scare with the kid and all that like that kind of thing like i like having access to that like to you know my player characters tend to be uh i mean they, they're all different kinds of people but the characters themselves tend to be teenagers and really hard to keep them together so it's really nice to have a scenario where they're all in one place uh and i can kind of maneuver the story from there they'll inevitably split up again but like, that's the one place where I'm like, okay, they're going to figure this out. They're going to go to the library and this is going to happen. And I can have that as almost like a save point in my mind for like what they're trying to figure out. Uh, the other big technology that I have used in, uh, and this is just a uh, window into the universe and uh, actually into some up uh, upcoming Kickstarter stuff is um, TV and radio is a massive part of, uh, the Rememorex and Radical Shadows universe. Uh, and what the players have figured out is that, long story short, most aliens don't travel through space. They travel through radio and television waves. So every time you're switching on radio or switching on a television, sort of opening a door for something to through it. 
um, <laughs> which is great because it, it allows for, uh, uh, you know, like I, I you know, I kind of keep them on their toes. And at one point, one of my players said something that stuck with me, which is because they were going to go like our characters are going to watch TV. And one of the other characters was like, are you kidding? TVs are the stormtroopers of Rememorex. And I'm like, all right. Yep. <laughs> you got me there. Well, that that's... that makes an interesting thing that you could play on in the modern day, too, is like if you're playing yeah. a game that's built around, you know, mega corporations or conspiracy theories or anything like that, like every time they the, the players pull out their cell phone to look something up, you'd be like, OK, well, your camera's pointed right at your face now and you're talking to each other. Go ahead. Yeah, that's true. Go ahead. Yeah. Talk all you and want. The, the, you're who's, researching. Who's and watching? Absolutely who's listening? What you're researching. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Like the internet providers will definitely know. It doesn't matter how many incognito tabs you open up. Now you have a paper trail, a digital paper trail. Yeah. One um, of the one of the tropes that is also similar to that that I like from the SCP universe is that there are cognito hazards where certain information will be harmful to learn and to know. So if you're playing in a paranormal type game, that could be something you could throw at your your players too kind of similar to what you were talking about with the tvs oh yeah so in uh holomatics which is the next book we're doing um and it's still part of the commandroids universe the commandroids are giant transforming robots but like unlike the transformers who came here physically as giant robots and then reconfigured themselves to look like our earth vehicles the commandroids came here as data they came on Halley's comet and beam themselves directly into our vehicles and then rebuilt the vehicles from within to be their own bodies, which is why they can turn into like earth cars and trucks and things. But also other other kinds of machinery too, right? Oh yeah, like we did, uh, we did 250 different vehicle forms, including like a full set of rules for like, if there's something we didn't think of, you can throw it in there. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you could be anything from a vacuum cleaner to, uh, uh, a roller coaster like there's like a zillion things you could turn into uh if it's a machine you can turn into it it it, it simply needs to be like you know slightly more complicated than uh, as I, I think it needs an engine i think that's about it and um so they, they they're kind of moving through the radio signals but like the holomatics move through tv signals um so uh, the game that I've been running recently in Holomatics, there's a lot of like the characters learning how to go into the broadcast and move into television and things like that. And I did another one um, concurrently that I got hired to do where, just in case anybody's listening, I can't explain why this is happening, but there's anachronistic items are showing up. And so that's kind of a fun thing to do with technology also is that like you can indicate that something is wrong with the time stream because it's 1986 and somebody just found an iPod. Mm -hmm. And for them, that's magic, right? That's yeah. absolutely a crazy magical item because it's, you know, it's the size of a deck of playing cards and it can play every song we've ever heard of. So including several that haven't been written yet. So that's <laughs> kind of a, a, a fun little. Uh, yeah, what's like, what's the quote? Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Exactly. Yeah, it's uh, Arthur C. Clarke, right? Um, uh, I believe so, yeah. And uh, it's weird that this is, you know, um, you know, if you're an old guy like me, that's in your lifetime that that happened. But yeah, by all means, if you had handed 12-year-old Sean an iPod, he'd be like, okay, well, you're a wizard. All right, I get it. <laughs> and I guess you would be because, you know, uh, that thing hasn't been invented yet. 
but still that kind of technology showing up in the wrong time. And you, you don't need to be handing a supercomputer to a medieval knight to have that kind of incongruous thing. One of the major plot points that we've also dealt with is, yeah, there was a lot of technology from the year 2499 showing up in in 80s suburbia and it took the players a long time to realize that it was earth technology from the future and not alien technology and that's as a gm i always love doing that i, I always love giving players stuff that they think is coming from somewhere but it's actually coming from somewhere completely different and it always takes them a while to put it together they're like why is everything here written in english if this is from an alien society uh, and why does this have a craft brand name on this <laughs> what is this apple what is yeah. this, this thing i i think too like one of the because the worry is they're going to use this technology they're going to or they have modern day knowledge that they're going to incorporate in the game and it's going to make it more difficult for you to provide the challenge but I, as a teacher, know it doesn't matter how much information you give somebody, they still have to figure out how to use it. And your players are still going to yeah. not, they're they're going to struggle in ways that you cannot imagine <laughs> that seems so, so silly to you. And it doesn't matter how much help you give them, whether or not that's the technology they have at their fingertips or not. Like I've run a game that was set in, in modern day and I told them like, okay, here's a Wikipedia page. Like this is information you need or what it was a, it was the Unicorn Hunter Society of Northern Michigan University. I gave them their website for their unicorn hunting rules because they were going to go hunt some unicorns. Uh, they still had to use that information that they learned on the for the unicorn hunt, um, which was to make poems. And also, unicorns won't appear to you unless you're a virgin. So all of that. <laughs> well, they won't let you touch them if you're not a virgin. Uh -huh. um, but they still had to use all that. And that can still provide a challenge. Like don't don't make the key as the gm don't make the key just knowing something the key should always be doing something acting on something um because just knowing something i mean knowing is half the battle but there's another whole half to that red lasers and blue lasers right right, right. <laughs> um but here too uh, this this makes me think about um not just knowledge from the internet um, but also just like the player knowledge that they bring to the, the table as people from the modern day. Right. Right. Um, yeah. You can, you can utilize that and you can encourage use of that. Um, like Jess is talking about, let it be something that's knowledge that they can work from, but they still have to implement a plan. They still have to do something with that knowledge, or it's just not knowing the thing, you know, and I don't know how many groups out there, this is just an example. I don't know how many groups out there necessarily have a doctor or a nurse or a first responder um in their group but you know we often play games that involve characters getting hurt and there's rules for you know there's there's stuff that has to do with like the human body and how quickly you get first aid and get something like you know if are there called shots are there you know hit locations or are there all this sort of stuff and like you can you can let the players like shine with their their knowledge about a situation like if 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 you're get if you have a game that's gets into the the nitty-gritty of how characters get injured like the the ambulance driver the emt can can talk about like well this person just got hurt and we have to worry about this this and this like you know or do we use our magical urban fantasy magic right, ability yeah. you know and and heal them because we're not sure that they're gonna get to the hospital um in time or they're gonna get help in time 
you know, I, as an architect, I run into that every so often in the game, somebody will ask me something about building construction or typical, you know, like typical good layout of certain types of buildings. Um, and I use it as a player knowledge. Occasionally I, I will point out right. like, you know, like the characters are looking for an exit out of this place. Well, it's a high rise. It's got to have two stairs and they all have to get you out to the ground floor or to another exit exitable area. You know, and we can't get to that one. So there's got to be another one like <laughs> Um, yeah, I find that by code there has to be it's life safety code and I'll tell the, the GM that and they'll be like all right that's that's true that's very true there has to be and, and that sort of thing it reinforces the real worldness of the game which helps to yeah I think, you know it, it can help bring um, a level of um, enjoyment to the game where like it feels like the stakes are real the, the world is real you're, you're you're dealing with a version of the real world that people understand. Um, and they see it actually having those, you know, those implications. I find that like to be such so much more of a problem when you are running a game that's set in the past, like the player's knowledge that's more advanced than what they would actually know in the 1920s, for example. Or if you're b bringing in historical figures, like oh, you know that this was actually a spy from World War II, and now right, you yeah. pretend <laughs> that you don't know this. I find yeah. that to be much more of a difficult problem, whereas you can use it so much more of an opportunity in the modern day that like it it's like using it using it to your advantage I, I think like then like the last piece of advice that I personally have is to read fantasy books that are set in the modern day because then you can see how they kind of deal with things like your your modern day wizards uh LARP Sean that you were mentioning reminded oh, me yeah. a lot of the Dresden Files I think that's a great series to read into to just trying to figure out like oh like what would a magical world be like in, in the modern day setting in a similar sort of role play aspect. Yeah, that's true. In mm. uh, I ran a game. Uh, it was Vampire the Masquerade, but it was set during the the nineteen ninety seven or yeah uh, nineteen seventy seven blackout in New York City. Mm. Uh, and I remember I ran it a couple times. And one of the times that I ran it, this one kid was like, "We need to get in touch with Washington about this because like he had a friend in Washington." He's like, "I have no way to do that." And I'm like, well, you know, you've, you've figured out a way to get the phones up and working. He's like, there's no phones. It's the seventies. <laughs> and I had to be like, um, no, they had phones. <laughs> my, my, my friend, they had phones in the 1870s. Yeah. There was a oh, phone gosh. in Deadwood, South Dakota. <laughs> That's so funny. I love that. Oh man. If um, I had known that he didn't think phones had existed, like, that would have been like something I would have played into his character being much more ancient as a vampire. I, I thought that was like, oh man, this was an opportunity here that we kind of, we kind of missed. You could have been like, you know, some sort of, you know, ancient vampire that's like, I'm sorry, I can talk to somebody in Washington immediately now. Why did nobody tell me this? For how long? For a hundred years? We've had these for a century? That's what this thing is? I thought it was some sort of wall art. <laughs> I was oh, only boy. embraced three weeks ago. Why did no one tell me? Um, <laughs> so with, with modern stuff, one of the things that I do kind of want to play with, like, and there's not a lot, like I, I, I'm not hugely into doing modern settings because I'm so happy with what I found with, you know, my, my perennial 1986 and like, you know, it's, uh, it, I don't want to get too into it, but like, it's really fun to play with that year. But one of the things that I would love to run in terms of a modern setting, I think the last time I did something that was set like in like the modern era, I did something set in the MCU. Uh, but uh, 
like this idea of AI generated cryptids is really exciting to me. Uh, and I feel like there's a lot that you can do with that. I don't know if you guys have seen the, the, the lobe thread on Twitter. I don't recommend Googling it if, for the faint of heart because it is scary as hell. But like, if you're into horror, uh, Loeb is amazing. And I, I, it's so inspiring. Like, oh my God, I want to run a game about that so bad. Um, I want to know what to Google. Uh, it's L-O-A-B, Loeb. Loeb. And I, it is through some complicated, like weird thing with uh, algorithms that this one guy set up. He's been, you know, the, the AI generated art. He came up with this woman that just keeps appearing in all of these different AI generated pieces. I hate that. I love it. Yeah, it's so <laughs> creepy. Makes me think uh, and, of the that makes me think of the Sun Dog, which is a uh, short story, is a, technically a novella, might be by Stephen King, which is uh, Polaroids. Every time the Polaroid is taken, it takes a picture uh, that the picture that comes out is the exact same thing. Um, no matter where you're pointing the camera, it's always the same view. Um, and there's a dog in the distance. And every time you take the Polaroid, the dog is getting closer and closer. And then it starts to get angry. And then it starts to bark, you know, to bear its teeth. And the, the, that, that's the whole oh. story. It just tell, tells the story of people taking these Polaroid photos and having this that's metaphysical awesome. angry rabid dog get closer and closer. Anyway. So, um, <laughs> yeah, let's let's move it because we're already kind of starting to touch on this. But our our design topic is like using modern day technology in your game. So uh, Craig, you want to explain a little bit about what that like we're trying to get at? Sure. Uh, I mean, just shifting the basic premise of what we've been talking about into um, the designer perspective, which is incorporating modern tech in your game and how uh, just thoughts about um, how to do that, how to approach that, because um, the thing that I found myself thinking about the most with this topic is that your player base, there's going to be a lot of experts or people who are very knowledgeable about modern day technology. And when you incorporate it into your game and have it be used in your game, if you're doing it in a realistic manner, if that's the goal, you know, you kind of have to have your act together and really, you know, research and make sure you kind of have to like either hire somebody or become an expert on you on your own and kind of know how like this stuff really is going to realistically work. And so that you can integrate it properly in the game that you can design rules that that have to do, you know, that that deal with it. One of the things that I personally find, I'm just going to segue right into talking about something. One of the things that I find personally something that doesn't interest me in particular, but I know pe there are people out there who design games who incorporate this sort of thing is like the, the nuances of different guns and different types of ammunition and range increments and damage dealt and other things that the guns can do um, and breaking down all of that sort of stuff and making those weapons realistic and making the choices that the players make when they decide what their characters are going to carry meaningful. Like my character has this game, this, this weapon or that weapon with this type of ammunition for this particular reason. And um, you know, like that, that takes some thought It requires you to, to put some time into that. And I don't have a, this is not a, a primer on trying to learn all that stuff, but that's something to keep in mind if you're designing is, like if you're going to go down that road, it's one of the reasons that any game that I design that has guns has pistol, rifle, shotgun, you know, assault rifle. That's like as varied as I get. 
um, with those things because I'm just not that person for, for, for designing that kind of game. But many people will want to design that sort of game. And there are a lot of players that will re- really dig playing a game that has that kind of stuff in it. Yeah. I mean, for weapons and things like that, I'm also like, it doesn't really matter to me what the weapon is doing. I'm sure that there are some people who really care about the distinction. I don't even care about the distinction between a pistol and a shotgun, to be honest. It, you point it, you shoot it and something dies at the other end. That is, that's as far as I need to go. I, I'm, I'm very interested though, in like the use of the internet and the use of new technology even um within games so i've been i've been thinking about like how can i include within the mechanics of a game some of this procedurally generated stuff that's coming out especially the art um i'm really interested now after this call looking into the lobe thing that you were talking about sean it is genuinely uh, unsettling it is super scary and i love it i yeah i'm i'm like so into that because one of the great things about new technology is that it is scary um existentially in many many ways and how how you can kind of set the tone for the use of technology within a game like there's a lot of opportunities when it comes to modern technology so correct like adding a lot of weapons if you add a lot of weapons with a lot of details about these weapons you are setting the tone for the game like you're going to be shooting some stuff you're going to be killing some things it setting the tone with like this super hopeful like look at all this connection you can make with the technology in the world and all these these rules about communication sets up a tone of cooperation in the game um i think that there are a lot of opportunities there to to innovate with some of with, with the new modern technology that's so much more interesting than just here's a sword and some chain mail that we so often just kind of default to. I don't know, should we be worried about being super accurate though? Like how many of our players are, I mean, we had this kind of chat with Joey Martin um, a couple weeks ago, Craig, like sometimes we notice, but it didn't seem like it was, it's not like that big of a deal if something's off, right? Um, I think it depends on the game. It depends on the player base. Like you and I do not make games for people who want a lot of super detailed gun mm-hmm. stuff, but there are people out there who will take apart the Shadowrun <laughs> weapon chart and absorb that and love that. And there are people who play mecha games who want to know the difference between this giant cannon and that giant cannon and, and are perfectly happy tracking how many mini rockets their, their mech carries on them of each type. Um, because they're going to use very specific types of mini rockets in different situations. And yeah, that, uh, and, like I said, again, we don't have, we, we can't break that all down in all the different ways, but that's something just to keep in mind if that's the direction you're going, that's just weapons. Like, you know, the same thing goes like Jess is saying for, for anything that has to do with like communication and, and information, you know, understanding if you want to get technical with stuff when you're designing, when you're, when you're, when you're talking about it in the world, you can dig into that sort of stuff. Like just as a, as an aside, like with designing code warriors, which is a game that is all about programs living inside of a computer world and the computer is crashing. Like I genericized a lot of stuff. There are parts of that game that people who really understand how computers work will look at that and go, Oh, I see there's a little nod to this or a little nod to that, but it's not broken down 
it, the game is not designed around how a computer actually functions because that's only going to be interesting to a, a subset of a subset of a subset of gamers. I, I did, but, but there, but there, are, but there are Easter eggs, you know, and you can do that too in your game where like certain things that you're dealing with for modern technology, you can kind of gloss it over, but maybe there, you know, you can incorporate little Easter eggs where people who are in the know are going to be like, Oh yeah, I see what you did. You're hinting at this or hinting at that. Or I love doing an Easter egg. It's one of my favorite things. And I mean, technology Easter eggs are, are trickier because yeah, it requires that you have that technological knowledge. But I find that like for the people that like that know what they're looking at, it does really help them to lock in. Um, and uh, when when we were doing a, uh, um, a play test of command droids at TFCon, which is a Transformers convention. And that sounds like it would be so much fun. <laughs> it was so much fun. Like, it's so nice being at a convention where you're the only game company as opposed to like fighting with 10,000 other game companies. Sure. And like, you know, once the dealer's hall is closed, you're really the only thing to do. So we were packed the whole time we were there. And uh, yeah, so uh, we were doing a, uh, a play test once. And I remember I was mentioning like, in the, the 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 sample setting in Commandroids, that uh, there's two roads, Welker, uh, Welk, uh, no, sorry, there's Wel uh, Welker uh, Cullen Avenue and uh, Welker Street, and they converge at the Scramble City Pier, which is like a theme park. And this one guy was just walking past the table and stopped and was like, "Scramble City? No way!" Because he picked up the like is all these incredibly deep cut references that we had thrown in there, but it was so rewarding to have like people picking up on it there. Like, and again, I could say all that stuff at Gen Con. Nobody's, I mean, there's probably going to be one or two that'll be like, ah, I see is Peter Collins, the voice of Optimus Prime, Frank Welker's Megatron and Scramble City was the original like name for one of the early seasons of Transformers in Japan. Um, <laughs> and deep, deep, deep cuts. And, you know, and, and, and frankly, all the stuff we're doing is, is full of that. Uh, but like when people do catch it, it really locks in uh, like, you know, you, you've 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 got like a fan who like recognizes that like somebody else is really into this. And it's actually been like a strange thing for me in terms of working on Holomatics is pivoting from something where I know all of these deep cuts and I can I can salt them in there like, you know, like I'm making like a, a fine steak or a barbecue i know exactly exactly how much seasoning and everything because i know all of these references because i grew up with it and in holomatics we're doing new age fashion doll barbie and jam and the holograms and i know none of it so i have to do this <laughs> deep dive to find all of these references but i'm i mean i'm getting a little bit off topic but like that they, when you do have you know the 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 deep cuts right it, it kind of indicates that you've done your research and people subconsciously twig to that right so they're like okay if 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 this person has put this incredibly deep cut reference into this thing it means they know their their stuff it's sort of a a nod between experts that like if if i'm doing a game about gem and the holograms and i'm referencing christy marks they know i've done my 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 homework because that's you know the name of the person who created it it's not really a household name it's not something everybody knows but if you're like a big gem and the holograms fan then you know who she is and so um 
you know, the location in Holomatics is, Harks, is Mark's Valley. So we, we got players interested through that kind of mini game within a game of, of re- finding those sorts of references. And doing that with technology is, I think, going to be even more fruitful because there's a lot of people in gaming who work in the tech sector and, you know, pick up on that kind of thing. I would love to show uh, uh, the, the the game you're talking about to my brother. He's uh, he designs uh, stuff for Apple, and like he's uh, very into like he's very into the technology he knows, and very very against the technology he doesn't. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> which I find to be is also very common, right? Is is people tend to be like very locked into like I know how this works, and I'm going to do this one thing, and if it's not this, I'm going to flip the table and leave because there's a billion things it could possibly be. So that uh, is something I, I would love to see uh, more of that um, and, and check it out and see like who who's picking up on it and who isn't. I, I think that you made, like you touched on something that's very important for like when you're designing the game is that it is providing this sort of world building and that the world building can happen in mechanics too. Um, it's also, if the detail is in the book, I don't need to go look it up, you know, uh, like that you are providing with when the more details you have in your book, you're providing information for the GM or for the other players. They don't need to do that research. They don't need to go look it all up. You've already done it for them too, which lets them focus on, you know, the actual running of the game. They don't need to have someone say, oh, well, that's not how this works. It works like this. Well, you already put that in your game. As long as you read the rules, you can figure it out at that point. I know I, uh, when I ran Commander Aids at Gen Con, I'm not a car person. So knowing, (laughs) being able to look into the book and see, okay, this is what it looks like. Okay, okay, I'm cool. I'm good. I got it now. That helped a lot. And it actually allowed me to run the game. Otherwise, it would just been, it's cars, little boxes on tires. Let's go. We turn into robots. And extrapolating from that, too, is, you know, from the designer point of view, the amount of detail that you put into the thing that you're providing information about. Like you've got a game that's about cars, whether it's a transforming cars or 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 a racing game or whatever um like the more information you provide the more detailed you get that tells you something that tells the 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 reader something about the game it tells them what they you know what's important what what they should pay attention to like jess was saying like with you know there's if there's four pages of of guns and ammunition like that tells you something about the game and that that's the case for any sort of technology Mm -hmm. um the more detail you as the designer provide um, and, and you're kind of defining in, in a way, you're also defining the limits of it too. Like by, by, te- by, by, if, if the amount of information you could provide is ranked on a scale of one to five and you provide a three level of detail, the players understand at that point, the readers of the book understand that, okay, that's the kind of level of detail we're going into for this stuff. It's probably the level of detail that's sufficient for pretty much anything in the game. We don't have to worry about getting super duper detailed about anything else in the game whereas if you have a game that's like super super gamist and gets all you know like everything's got a stat and there's like 45 pages of rules and everything you know like that tells you something about the game and, and like you can expect m- much of the game to revolve around things at that level that's true and and having that be cohesive across the entire game design is good 
having a lot of information about this and then next to nothing about that, I I find to be, and I'm not saying my games don't do this occasionally <laughs> because I'm sure they probably do, um, but that's that's that uh, that design could be better if if it's like super super duper detailed about something and then other things are barely touched on, um, unless those other things are literally just not part of the game. We had a really interesting uh, design session when we were working on that section about the cars, where uh, it was me and my brother, um, who were both Gen X, and then uh, our friend Emerson, who's one of the writers, and he's millennial, uh, and then one of the artists, Lem, and he's like Gen Z, I guess, I don't know what you call it, and there was this progression of knowledge that went back that was very interesting, where uh, Lem was coming at it like, okay, these are a bunch of cars and jets and vacuums and stuff, and I don't really know what any of it is, but I'm here to draw whatever you need. And then Emerson's like, okay, I kind of know what the cars are, but I don't know how you guys are so like immediately aware of like all of these tanks and jet fighters. And me and my brother are throwing back and forth like, well, you know, the SR-71A Blackbird is the fastest and the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the Fairchild uh, F, uh, Thunderbolt 2 is uh, the, the most heavily armed. And then, you know, the, the F-16 is from Iron Eagle and the F-14A Tomcat is from uh, Top Gun. And we realized it was like growing up in Gen X, like jet fighters were our like, they were our celebrities. Like we knew those <laughs> like through and through because we were just constantly. And like part of it was, you know, part of this mythology, right? Like the, uh, um, the A-10 Thunderbolt 2 was, was also the Cobra Rattler and it was also Power Glide from the Transformers. So we knew who it was, like literally by name or like the F-14 was the Tomcat, the, the, the plane from, uh, from Top Gun. So it was, it, but like it became this thing that like, I feel like we aren't alone in that. Like there's a lot of Gen X that would, could, could immediately identify uh, an SR-71 versus 15 and then like that knowledge gets lost from generations down because why should a millennial care what jet fighter from like 20 years ago was what uh and and that was really fascinating was, was getting to see that but there's like these weird echoes of these things right that like uh and and just in how de the development of pop culture affects technology so like I learned that like the newest incarnation of the uh, of the um, the F-16 Eagle is uh, like, I think it's like the F-16 or it's like the Super Hornet or something like that. But it's basically the same jet, just kind of updated because not only is it a highly effective jet, but also it's kind of a highly effective brand. And that's fascinating. Right. That like a lot of these jets are kind of being brought back in the same way that like when they did Star Wars, they did like kind of an X-Wing Mark II for the sequels. Because not only is the X-Wing obviously a highly effective space superiority fighter, but at that point, and this makes a lot of sense, it would also be an icon that would mean something to the people of those planets. That they were like, Yeah, this was the this was the thing that took down the Death Star. This is a savior to us right to the people of uh bespin or endor or Tatooine or any planet really that was under the empire they would look at the x-wing as a symbol of heroism of 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 uh of, of resistance to the empire so naturally the resistance would be less inclined to like because if you look at 
the progression of the the Star Wars ships before that, they're they're kind of all over the map, right? Like the the uh, you know the, the Republic had like all these weird droid ships, uh, or sorry, they didn't have the droid ships. That was the Separatists, but they had all these weird different like Jedi ships. So they had the Ather Sprite, and before that, they had like the Naboo fighter, which was a whole thing, and they're bringing that back for the Mandalorian. But there were a bunch of different ones. And then the X-Wing blows up the Death Star and it becomes this icon. So they just kind of lock into it. And they're like, we're keeping this. <laughs> it makes less sense that the First Order would be so like sort of holding on to the TIE Fighters the same way. Because if the TIE Fighters proved anything in their like three movie run, it was that they really couldn't do much. Right. There's, <laughs> they're a highly effective way to kill off Imperial pilots, but not much else. So uh, that's that's where viewer they, viewer they upgraded to something else, but right. But that's where viewer recognition trumped real universe logic. Yeah, and I, the, I'm, I, we I have a lot of want tie fighters those, because we want three. to see the solar panels go flying off of those. But things. I think they could have done something way more interesting with the new tie fighter. They like, could have done have, a like, lot way more interesting with the they could have made it a lot cooler, <laughs> scarier and been like, I mean, the world building is really where those three really. Ugh. But like, oh, man, can you imagine, you know, like if they had like, you know, like that one that Kylo Ren has, I think that should have just been the bog standard tie to sort of <laughs> indicate, OK, we've learned do not use these you know, the regular TIE fighters use these upgraded ones. And, and that would have been so much more interesting. It would have indicated that like these guys are a bigger threat. They've learned from the mistakes of their predecessors and they're using a more dangerous ship to deal with threats to their sovereignty because, you know, having learned from the failures of the past, they're not going to go with like this sort of stripped down, you know, crappy little thing they're going to go with this highly advanced much more upgraded thing because they're they're serious you know it would have indicated i, I uh, gotcha i gotcha and before we dive too far down the rabbit hole of fighting over star wars because <laughs> if there's anything geeks know how to do it's uh, over star wars um <laughs> i mean i'm just using this as an example yeah, yeah, yeah. of like how you can use technology to indicate like that very you know, certain global decisions have been made or, or in this case universal decisions have been made based on events in the past and so all, this whole discussion here recently too just like that we've got that you that you were talking about with your team also makes me think too something to keep in mind as a designer is that the technology that like w when you set your game in quote unquote modern times and what technology you use and focus on is going to speak to different audiences and different ages of audiences, different ways. Like if you were to make a game that where the characters are doing things that involve very today, either cutting edge or very popular, well-known technology, that's going to speak to a particular audience. That's going to be interesting to a particular audience. It may be less interesting to an older audience who doesn't really understand or isn't really immersed in some of these things because they have their things that they love and they love what they love. And, you know, they're not necessarily into the quote unquote newfangled stuff that those kids are up to. Right. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's another thing like that that can play into your design and your your choices uh about what to include and what to get into detail on because like as an example and this actually speaks to technology that's used in the process of playing the game but um Alice is missing is played entirely through texts on a cell phone and there are certain groups of players who will never play that game mm. 
because they just don't text on cell phones or don't right. consider it something that would be a like why would you that that seems like a weird game to play you know but for for a for a generation that has lived and died <laughs> by their cell phone texts that's an innovative interesting kind of thing and that can go for real world what you're using to play the game and it can go for what the game is about because like in 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 Alice's in 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 Alice's missing the characters are never in the same place at the same time they are having text conversations so and you are doing that to 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 play the game so that's something that uh, strikes me as like an interesting headspace to kind of wander through and figure out like, you know, what, if I'm using this technology or that technology in my game and making it a focal point of the game, like who does that speak to in, in terms of audience? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, it got me thinking actually earlier when I was talking about the libraries, like I've never seen, I mean, it might exist a system by which a group could in one place pretend to be texting each other. And having a conversation in text when they, I mean, it's sort of a step backwards, but it's kind of an interesting thing, like to do like a game set in the modern world where like, yeah, everybody's at home on their own computer doing their own and they're having a, a text conversation, but they're all actually in the same room. How would, how would you run that? And how would you play that? It's got me thinking and like, I, I mean, there's definitely something there. That's kind of interesting. There, because I there's guess the, certainly a limitation on what you can do via text versus what you can do via spoken word. Well, the advantage I'm seeing is kind of the opposite of the cell phone problem is that if everybody's having a conversation and they're alone, right, then they can't help each other if something happens to one of them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're running a game about like, uh, we're researching the Slender Man and the Slender Man shows up, you're alone with the Slender Man. You might be talking to your friends, but they can't help you. Oh, and you wouldn't be able to be uh, texting because he will corrupt your signal waves. Uh, I'm <laughs> and yeah. invite yeah. all the aliens to come after you anyway because this is one of Sean's games. <laughs> yeah, something, something bad's gonna happen. Uh, it's 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 a thing that I definitely use where like the aliens are going to look like what you expect them to look like. So if you're expecting a Slender Man, guess what you're gonna get? Yeah, he kind of does look like like a little alien guy anyway. Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely he's got the uh, he's got, he's got the, the old fashioned gray sort of silhouette. Of, yeah. Uh, sort of classic uh, big big gray alien well there's i think that there's a lot of places that we can go uh with modern technology i'm i like to look into games that do it and i think that everyone else should too if they're thinking about taking some modern technology and and writing a modern game uh and i think that we could have this conversation for forever but we need to wrap up we need to get (laughs) out of here sean thank you so much for coming and talking with us and thank you so writing your insights letting me talk about this because this is like i said before this is really not my wheelhouse so i'm i'm kind of enjoying going outside of my comfort zone with it that was that was really interesting yeah where can we find you and and learn about your stuff what do you what do you have to plug for us well uh the next big one is going to be holomatics uh a new wave order and that along with Commandroids, uh, World Transformed and Rememorex and everything else that we do and RPG Nasty, that is all on uh, nerdycity.com. And that's probably the best place to look for us. Awesome. You can find me on Twitter at, at Joska or my games on one of you games, or maybe I'll disappear forever because I'm about to right after this call is over. <laughs> oh no. Down- download 
download uh, the episode and then look up the lobe. Maybe it will haunt me. <laughs> oh dear. I'm excited. Good luck. <laughs> Uh, and I'm at Nerdburger Craig on Twitter. Uh, the website is nerdburgergames.com and everything's up at DriveThruRPG. Um, my Patreon is patreon.com slash nerdburgercraig. And uh, we're well into designing all sorts of stuff for Capers Cyber. There's artwork happening. It's very exciting. Thank you for our opening and closing theme song, which is Avil by Steph Sachs, which was licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you, Steph Sachs, and thank all of you for listening. And we'll see you back here next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.